This episode of the Better Every Shift podcast is sponsored by The Fire Store. Learn more about getting the gear you need at prices you can afford by visiting thefirestore.com. Welcome to the Better Every Shift podcast. My name is Aaron Zamzow. I am a fire lieutenant in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm also a writer for Fire Rescue One. And there's my editor-in-chief, my captain. Uh, the real uh, brains behind this podcast, Janelle Fasquette. Janelle, how are you doing today? I am doing great, Aaron. How are you? I'm great. I'm actually, I'm very excited to learn a little bit more um, today from uh, our, our guest, who is a uh, Chief Randall Hannafin, who uh, is actually not only a chief, but a doctor, very smart, educated man. And he's here to talk about um, some engineering and uh, about the Institute of Fire Engineers and some of the things that he's been involved with. Uh, chief, thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? Hi, Aaron. Thanks for having me on. Uh, doing great today. A little rainy outside here in the uh, Cincinnati, Ohio area, but, uh, you know, take some of the good with some of the bad weather. So, how about yourself and Janelle? I'm good. I'm actually in Ohio. I'm doing some speaking uh, in person. And, you know, I love these rainy days because they're perfect for learning. They're perfect to dive into something that you maybe don't know a lot about, uh, which I don't know a lot about the Institute of Fire Engineers, but you are the president of the Institution of Fire Engineers here in the USA branch. You're the assistant chief of operations for uh, Westchester, Ohio Fire Department. Uh, you served as an instructor with the National Fire Academy. You're associate professor for the American Public University. You're chair of the IFC's company officer section. You previously served uh, as a task force uh, force leader for FEMA's Ohio USAR Task Force One. Man, you've um, you've studied a lot on fire and EMS administration, uh, disaster planning, grant writing, management. You have your PhD, doctor in executive management of homeland security so you're bringing the show's iq at least on the host side up quite a bit um you know so first first let me ask are you an engineer then ah very good question we often get that because we're the institution of fire engineers worldwide the engineering community is who is a fire engineer well a fire engineer could be somebody that's an architect that builds the building they could be somebody that works on the fire protection systems and installs them they could be a fire investigator. They could be a firefighter. Um, so worldwide, there is not as much division like we find in the United States where we have our own profession in the fire service and kind of those other architects and engineers, the you know, fire protection system installers are in their own profession and they have their own association. So what is an engineer uh, from the IFE standpoint is we're all engineers because we all contribute in some way, whether it's the architect designing the building, the person that puts the fire protection system in it, the person that investigates how the fire happens so that we can write codes to make uh, buildings safer. And then, you know, obviously what we think of day to day in our profession is the person that comes out when everything doesn't go correctly and responds to the fire and puts it out and rescues people and those sorts of things. So, we're hoping one day that that becomes a little more connected to the United States, but from the United States branch, um, IFE USA is about 90% uh, 
either company or chief fire officers. Um, we do have some of the other engineering professions that are represented. So when you look at our association versus um, others, uh, we focus on a lot more wide range of how do we have fire extinction? Well, we're kind of a connected community with other professions here in the United States. And if we all don't work together, do our jobs correctly, then that fire extinction doesn't happen as quickly. So, so I guess to answer the question is no, I'm actually a failed engineer. That's what I went to school to do right out of high school. You see how well that worked. Um, so yes and no, I guess I'm a failed engineer. Now I'm an engineer. Got it. It's a little confusing, but I, I actually, I, I, I understand that a, a little bit better now, especially like with, with the engineer in, in college, right? Math and physics and all that stuff. And once you get into those really high tech numbers, it's tough. I, I think though it worked out okay for you. Um, you know, when you, when let's talk about you a little bit. So what got you really inve invested in learning more about the organization or, and, and, or, you know, now being president, you know, what are you really trying to work towards? Um, so what got me interested is kind of a unique story. We had a fire chief here locally. Um, and you would always see initials behind names like PhD and knew what that stood for CFO. You could kind of figure that one out, EMT and he had MI Fire E. I'd never seen it before. So I emailed him. I said, hey, what's that goofy set of initials you got behind your name? He said, well, I'm the president of the uh, USA branch. You'd be a perfect fit. Here's your application. Fill it out and find out. That's literally how I got involved in the Institution of Fire Engineers. And then all I did was raise my hand one day to say I'd be interested in helping out with the training and education that we have for a committee. A couple days later, you end up you know, it was the president of the, of the branch. So um, that's that's my story. It's pretty uh, mundane and kind of goofy, but uh, that is literally how I got involved in it. So um, we're hoping more people use their post nominals as they do, because, you know, as silly as that sounds, you know, why did you figure out, you know, you wanted to apply to be a chief fire officer? Well, you saw somebody with that behind their name. Why did you figure out you wanted a master's degree, like, oh, what's MS behind your name? So we think over the time, that'll be great if we can get everybody that's in to use the post nominals and kind of move that around. So um, between MI Fiery and FI Fiery is kind of the two primary designations that you'll see from the institutional fire engineers. What's the, what's the education component? Uh, uh, it actually varies. So we have uh, we have about six different grades of membership, anywhere from someone that is literally a student uh, that could be in fire school, that could be an engineering school, architect school, all the way up to what we call a fellow. So when you look behind my name, you see the FI Fire E. Uh, so that's fellowship. So you've got to have uh, lots of education. You don't have to have a PhD, but a lot of our fellows are. Um, and you've got to have 15 years minimum of doing something nationally uh, significant in the fire engineering realm. So, you know, just attending trainings in your department or going to the neighboring department really doesn't qualify. So like Aaron or Janelle, who, you know, been out and done all these things, those are really what qualifies you to move that through. Uh, typically in the United States branch, most of ours go in as member grade. They've been in the fire service for a little while, usually between a bachelor's and master's degree. 
Um, and a lot of that's more competency based than it is just hard line. Hey, you have to have this degree. So do you have any construction background then too, or that, obviously that helps quite a bit? Yeah, that's actually, uh, there was two things. I failed in the engineering department and I started out framing houses. So I discovered that I didn't want to work really hard and I couldn't be an engineer. So here I am. So that's my construction background was I hauled subflooring for about six months out of high school and discovered I was going to need to find something to use my brain at rather than my back. In addition to all your degrees, you call yourself a pracademic. I was hoping you could tell us what that means to you. Yes. So oftentimes, you know, you'll, you'll have people that say, ah, that's just a person that's got a lot of education and they have, they have no clue. Like they've never done the job. And then in the universities, you'll say, oh, well, that person's, you know, got all practical experience, but they have no ability to develop theory or do anything else. And I think I offer someone who literally started out riding in the back of the fire truck, just went to school at during shift a lot, like instead of watching television, I actually sat in a row of chairs behind it, did my homework and kind of worked my way up. So I didn't come in as a, you know, a PhD. I didn't come in as a master's degree. So I've literally worked through both sides. So to me, that is probably the bridge that is actually needed to get the two sides to work together. Cause when I show up for the university, I hear it from one side. And when I show up from the fire department, I hear it from the other side. So, but, I see the big connection is needed. Yeah, you kind of can talk both languages then. Yeah. So when you when you look at both languages, um, you know, through the through the academia side, right, continued your education and obviously then you get on the job training. How have things evolved over the last uh, like 20, 25 years, um, it, you know, of your career? Um, well, you've seen a, a higher importance in education, you know, right, wrong or indifferent. Uh, governments have been run more like a business. Um, so a lot of that is truly needed. If you want to go up, I tell people all the time, there's no no use or need for my level of education. If you intend to pull fire hose off of a truck sitting in the back seat of it all day, like all I want you to do is be good at that. But someday you may end up wanting to have to figure out how to budget for the hose that belongs on the truck, spec and buy the fire truck, and then figure out the political and business aspects of making sure the fire truck actually can sit in the bay and have people attached to it that are paid decently. So, you know, as you move, there's going to be a different skill set. And I've seen that kind of evolve from just promoting the person that's been there longest to now, you know, a lot of those different education backgrounds, experience backgrounds come into play. Obviously, from a technology standpoint, we were discussing the other day, the first thermal imager was uh, bought about two years after I ended, in a, in, ended up here in the fire department. It was a full-size helmet with a camera that needed a weight on the other side because it was so heavy to balance the helmet. There was some sort of pack we had to carry around us that you know fit over top of our air pack. And today I have something that'll fit in the palm of my hand that does the exact same thing. And it's so light that we don't even realize we lose them these days. So, you know, you just see the technology that's driven our profession. Now, at the end of the day, all that technology is great, but if we don't have quality people with, you know, good values and good training, all that technology is just 
taking up a lot of space in our bay, basically. Look at the building construction side too and technology, right? Like obviously part of your role is you keep keep up with that side as well, correct? Yeah, uh, obviously uh, we have to. I'm pretty fortunate when I started here in the fire department in Westchester, a, a good portion of it was farm fields. Um, in fact, one of the interstate interchanges didn't even exist. It was just literally starting to move dirt. We've now put the 13th uh, four-story and above hotel off of that same exit. Um, so we've gotten to see the whole community being built, and it's kind of unique. You know, you go learn from you know the, the people in New York, and they talk about you know building construction and how they fight fires, and then you look at how we're building buildings, and you're thinking, well, I couldn't be in that for two hours. I actually can't be in that for about ten minutes before it's designed to come down, and it's heavily relying on a sprinkler system. We've given a lot of credit, and we probably should to putting those fire protection systems in, sprinkler systems in. And in a trade-off, we've allowed, you know, a lot taller wood buildings. We've allowed a lot smaller dimensional lumber. The sprinkler systems were designed all on schedules when we first started. Now it's all very hydraulically designed and one small error anywhere can really, you know, add up to a disaster. So as we've seen those buildings shift, we have to understand how we interact with the building and we have to kind of understand that from a builder standpoint they almost look at them as disposable so you know that kind of changes our mindset as we start working inside of some of these buildings so um yeah how do we so, get, how do we get, get that education though out to you know obviously podcasts like this are a good part of that but right like you know that's there's a lot to, to, to really to digest in that last statement that because I know exactly what buildings you're talking about. They're they're popping up in my community. They're popping up, you know, um, wherever you go. You're seeing these four or five story, you know, sometimes they're commercial on the bottom and then residential on the top. And uh, yeah, they're sprinklered. But um, as you're saying, there's a lot of systems that interplay and errors do happen. Yet we still got to be prepared for all of that. Correct. Yeah, I mean, at, at least from our operations, you know, my operational philosophy here for the department is we have to prepare as if none of those will work. And it's a great day if they all do. Um, yeah, you know, we, that. you know, I've caught flack before for, you know, a, a four story and above building for us as a mid rise. Our first alarm out the door is 51 people. People find that amazing that we would send that many people on a one alarm fire. Well, you've got two things going against you. I got buildings that have that problem. Like if one small thing goes wrong, we could end up with a disaster. And because we're in the suburbs, it takes incredibly much longer to get people here. So if you really want to wait to call them, the next time you're going to need them, it's over. So um, yeah, you, you, know, you, have to, just... you have to plan for the disaster and you have to make sure that you're 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 thinking steps ahead especially in your position now because you're directing the entire department which goes into kind of the next great transition is you've also had a passion and to educate uh, about disaster planning and disaster management how has that changed over the course of your career meaning you know it's a lot of the disasters and things that we're planning for now were those talked about before yeah so i i think you've switched from early on 
there was not a lot of collaboration that went on and, and people did their own planning. And then there was a phase where they came together, but it was, well, we'll plan for what's practical, not worst case scenario, because worst case scenario is probably not going to happen. And you've seen different disasters occur time and time again, where it literally is the worst case scenario because we've never seen it before. And that keeps occurring. And well, now that's your new norm. So I think people have become a lot more cognizant of number one, doesn't matter how big of a fire department you have, you're not going to do this on your own. There has to be, you know, a community involvement. There has to be other government agencies. There has to be private industry. Those all have to be people at the table that are willing to come together to number one, do some of the mitigation work because, you know, our best money spent in emergency management is in mitigation. It's the invisible part that no one sees, but if you don't build a house in the middle of a forest or you don't build it right next to where the hurricanes occur every two years, you probably won't have to spend the money to rebuild it, right? Like it's common sense, but you know, I like my wooded lot and I like to live on a beach. So I don't know that you're going to fix those 100%. So, you know, it has to start with that. Then it, you know, all right, if we're going to put them on the beach and we're going to put them in wooded lots, okay, well now we have to do some sort of preparation, whether that's, you know, cutting the forest back from it, building homes differently. So, you know, you've got a lot of phases and then, you know, the popular phase that makes the news is a response and we have to be able to assemble the type of response that the community expects because it used to be four and five days before we would ever figure out what happened. By that point, everyone's there. It looks like it's great. Now, literally you can watch it on any one of your cable networks blow by blow as it's coming in and see, and a public has an expectation that even though, you know, you can't get in because the, the hurricane is still going through that magically you're going to pop out of the ground and like everyone's going to be there and everything's going to be okay. So, you know, there's, there's that expectation that's come with our instant gratification and instant media that has really changed the landscape of our disaster planning and response. You know, and I'm curious where departments can begin if they don't have a plan in place right now for disaster management. I mean, your department or your area, I should say, is a perfect example when you described, you know, what it was like from when you first lived there to these high rises going up and interstates. I mean, that's a lot. That's a huge change that requires a big change for first responders as well. So for those departments that don't have something in place right now, as their community is changing, what would you advise for them in terms of, you know, how, how to jumpstart that? Well, you've got a couple things. Um, you know, obviously this podcast and, and the way we learn today, I used to have to get in an airplane, travel around the country, and I would meet people that way. I can literally never leave my desk and I can be in five different countries learning from people all over. So I think, you know, number one, get connected. Um, you know, there's no reason to reinvent the wheel. We all have the same problem. I joke all the time. We work for the same fire department. They just put a new name on it. So I know where to go to work. Um, but we all have the same issues and we all have the same problem. So reach out. If you were to call me and ask for our emergency operations plan, other than the stuff that's, you know, super secret that we have to take out, I would happily send you the whole thing. Um, and I'm sure 
just everyone else in this profession is the same way. So to me, that's, that's your jumpstart to go learn and be involved. I, you know, literally after nine 11, I had a friend call me and say, Hey, look, the, the USAR task forces are putting in a hazmat section and they need some people. Are you interested? That sounds like a good idea. Yeah. 10 years later, I'm a task force leader for one of the 28 teams. So, you know, it's just, you show up do a little bit of work and you know, it happens. So, you know, but you have to get involved and those are people that, you know, I've met the whole time of that 17 years with the, the task force that were a wealth of knowledge. And it was a wealth of knowledge to, you know, get to go around the country and see the disasters and things like that. So when we come back here to our own community, you know, I would show up to places that literally six by six piece of wood would be the biggest thing left. And it would just shred the town. Well, when you come back here and, you know, you've got a tornado that knocked out a few buildings, you're like, huh, I mean, it's bad, but it's not really that bad. So, you know, I think those things and being able to get involved in those organizations really help you when you come back to your community. Well, and that's the essence of trying to get better, right? Um, you know, which hence what this podcast is about. But one of the best ways is to rely on those that have been there and done that. Um, people that are smarter than you, which is why you're talking to us, because, uh, you know, obviously we have a lot to learn. I have a lot to learn from you. And, and, and with that, though, sometimes we don't look very far, meaning overseas or internationally, and you have the uh, kind of the ability or you have this connection through, um, you know, through the institution of fire engineers to talk to fire service members over, uh, you know, across the pond or, uh, or all around the world. Um, do you see us? Why don't we do that more often? Well, you think about how long it took us to leave our own cave, right? Just to come out of our own organization. And then yeah. now we start to do that. And I think as we continue to move along, we'll start to see that there are more commonalities. Yes, their fire trucks look kind of strange comparative to ours. Actually, they say ours look strange compared to theirs. Um, you know, we have some differences, but I think when you really start to connect with those different countries, you realize that we have a lot in common. Or one of the things that it's made me realize is how fortunate we are in the United States. So, you know, I went to Trinidad and, you know, you would think, oh, that well, there's a place that you know millions of people they must have 50 60 firehouses just in their urban area much less you know all over the country which is basically the size of ohio and um it was under 10 and two in the urban area and you know just shocking to see the difference now granted they don't run ems they don't have fire alarms so we both know if you took those away from us the amount of legit working fires um, are less and you learn that in the United States, when someone has a fire, it's like, oh, we feel very sorry for you. It's very unfortunate. Some other countries, it's actually looked very down upon if you had a fire. Like, oh, I can't believe you would have a fire. So there are cultural issues that kind of stop some of those fires. And then you begin to realize, well, they could put 50 or 60 around, but hmm, I guess they really only need to. Um, so, you know, it just shows you the differences that you can recognize throughout the world. The Fire Store, equipping protectors with passion. Every decision we make as a company is about you, our customer. 
We wouldn't be where we are today without you, and we don't take that lightly. We understand that having the right gear can mean the difference between life and death. Our goal is to get you the gear you need, when you need it, at prices you can afford. Visit us at thefirestore.com for everything but the truck, and shop our family of brands, including Streamlight, MSA, Lion, Fleer, and more. Now let's get back to the show. What's the biggest thing, um, you know, other than how fortunate we are in the U.S., what's another thing that you've uh, really wished that we would understand and, and take note of um, that from talking to international um, departments? Um, I, I, like I said before, and I, I kind of opened with this, I think we are very siloed in the United States and not recognizing that you know, as we talked about these you know, buildings that they're putting up in our area, we're relying on all these different professions to do what they're supposed to do. That has a great effect on us, but we're not really involved in any of those professions, associations, etc., to have a voice to do that so that we understand the bigger picture of what it actually looks like to make the public safe, make sure we're safe when we're operating in the buildings etc. So I, I truly think that's where we're going to have to grow as a country. What's, Are they doing what's, a better job over there of taking a more holistic approach and being less siloed overall? Are there particular departments or even countries that are known for being very kind of all-inclusive with how everything sort of is interconnected? Um, I don't know that one country sticks out. I, I think one of the bigger things that I note and, you know, especially going to the UK, which is kind of where we're housed out of, uh, we have very descriptive building codes and fire codes. Do X because of Y. Um, a lot of theirs are performance-based codes. It must be able to do this and we actually don't care how you do it. You just have to prove that it can. Um, so, you know, you look at the Grinnell fire, you know, the siding that brought a lot of legislative changes in the UK, um, you know, one of those was more stairwells in the larger building. So, you know, you see them moving more towards a descriptive code versus a performance base. So I don't know that there's a, a solid answer of what I've seen, but I think when you get to go around and sample those, you get to have the knowledge to bring together to say, if I was going to create the best system, this might be what the best system looks like. Being a new firefighter or new lieutenant, how imperative is it for our crews to get out there and talk to um, those construction crews and, and and people that are on those scenes of these new buildings? Uh, it's imperative. Um, you know, when we created our size up, there was some debate because I, I'm very big on them putting the building type, you know, like a type two construction, a type five construction in their size up. And, you know, why do we do that? We really have two types of buildings. And I said, well, it's, it's a lot of the buildings that sit right behind our fire headquarters. They could have been hotels built completely of concrete, or they could be hotels that the first floor is metal studs wrapped with the sheet metal to make sure the metal studs are strong enough to hold the next four floors of wood. That's the difference we have in the buildings that literally sit next to each other. And when they're done, we don't know which one they are. If you didn't see that go up, operating in one that's, you know, a full 
you know, fire protected concrete building is a whole different strategy and tactics than one that is four floors of wood being held up by a couple pieces of metal underneath of it that hopefully will be there when we go into building. So I think, you know, you have to know your district. I always thought when I was the company officer, the, like my battalion chief knew everything. Oh man, he knows everything. He's in the outside of the building. Like it's been here longer. I became a battalion chief and I discovered, yeah, I knew my district that I came from pretty well, but I didn't know a whole lot about buildings in other districts because I didn't work in those. So I relied heavily on the company officer. So I think it was a, you know, a mind shift. And now that I'm responsible for the entire department, there literally only is so much time for me to go out and learn those. So, you know, while I may be in charge of the large fire when it occurs, I truly rely on the people that are in that district to know that building, know where the things are in it. You know, I can only dig out a pre-plan so fast and figure that out. But if that first due company officer knows where his fire department connection is, knows where the standpipe connections are, all those things so that they can make those things work. I hopefully will never be in charge of the fire because it'll be put out and our battalion chief will you know, be in charge of it and it'll be over before I get there. So, you know, to me, that company officer um, is the backbone of the fire department um, and they really set the tone for what goes on in their district. Yeah. So understanding that district is, uh, is imperative. Uh, you know, we, we had a story with uh, Chief Lieb from FDNY on, on one of his first uh, calls as a as a company officer, as a battalion chief. You know, he said it was a, a alarm call and it's one that stood with me being a new officer. Uh, and it and it it really goes along with your point is, you know, he his uh, his battalion chief. It was a three o'clock alarm call at three o'clock in the morning. His chief on the radio, you know, said, hey, Lieutenant, how many stories are you in? right now how many stories was that building you know because we have a tendency to oh you know i've been to this building a you know a couple of times or we it's an alarm call and um you know just being more aware of uh, building construction as you enter buildings as they're being built is what you're saying there too chief is imperative because they really don't look any different now and it is it's scary in a way um you know and and I asked before about the transition in construction. What other trend do you see in construction that's scary to you for us in the fire service? Um, well, the, the tall wood buildings, I mean, we haven't seen how those will perform. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those, they're going to build it as cheap as possible. At the end of the day, the person financing the project that's collecting rent that had to pay the, the mortgage on it, they're looking for the greatest difference between the rent collected and the mortgage. So the cheaper they can sell, build that building and the more rent they can get, that's their profit model. So we have to understand that unless we stand up to try to do that, and I'm sure you're aware, the Builders Association is one of the largest you know, groups that has some influence. Um, so, but we have to know how those are changing. So we may not be able to legislatively change it, but we're going to have to operate different in each of those buildings than what we've done in the past. And what they wrote down 20 years ago may not be the same thing. We have to be very diligent as they're building the buildings to get our inspectors out to make sure if it says we need fire stopping in these areas, that it's actually done correctly because the entire building 
is designed around those parameters. And if it didn't even get built correctly, well, it's certainly not going to perform correctly. So, you know, it's all those front end things that we as the, the person that's, you know, hey, I just want to make fires, go on EMS runs. Like it's all those things that get you out to understand how the building's built, how it should perform and getting you involved early that are really going to make the difference in a community, especially one that's being built overnight. Well, I was going to ask, how does somebody get involved? Well, so the easiest way to get involved is to go to our webpage, ifeusa.org, and look at the application, look at the information on there. Um, you know, obviously, if you're willing and want to, we're happy to answer any questions. A lot of what's on the website is kind of self-explanatory, but um, we're happy to walk people through that. So, if, you know, if you email the membership link on there, we'll happily work you through it. Uh, one of the things we do have uh, that is a nice reciprocity is anybody that's got their chief fire officer. Um, basically, you fill out a one-page form because a lot of the CFO qualifications mimic our member grade qualifications. Um, so we have that reciprocity back and forth with the Center for Public Safety Excellence, where if you have your CFO, we basically hand you a one-page application verify some of that information and we can move you over into the member grade uh, and vice versa. If you were to have your member grade, you can, you know, take that the other direction. So I think that's the easiest way to get involved. And then really that's the first part of it. You know, it's great that we have, you know, 500 plus members. However, um, 500 members that do nothing more than just have some initials and uh, an association sticker, so to say, uh, we need people to get involved. So we've got committees, obviously you can run for the board, all those different things that have to happen in order for this to work. So, um, you know, obviously join, that's the first thing, and then let's get you involved. Yeah. All right, Chief, you, you've given us the how, but I want to hear more of the why. Can you give us the 30-second pitch on why people should join the IFE and the difference they can make? Sure. Uh, IFE does basically three things. We are a international organization. We are focused on more than just fire response. So we have, as we talked about, the different disciplines of engineering. And then we have a lot of research base because we're able to pull internationally. So, you know, you get a, a much better research base from an international that allows you to go back and put that in your organization. Not only that, but it's probably the only association in the U.S. that will connect you internationally. Um, so that is truly the difference for us versus anyone else. Great. Well, Chief, I, I, we appreciate the, the, the insight into uh, obviously the what you're doing there with the Institution of Fire Engineers from a, a a standpoint of you and your professional development as you've grown through your gone through your career, if you had a chance to do it all over, you'd do differently. Hmm. I don't know that I'd do anything a whole lot differently. Um, you know, I think you look back and think, well, I could have done this before this, or you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm I always say it's kind of unique that 
I never got to go through the executive fire officer program. The first time I was literally in the executive fire officer program, I was there as a student instructor. Um, so, you know, that's something I think I missed early in life. Um, it wasn't, you know, a given here in our organization at the time. So, you know, I, I think that's neat. Um, I truly say if you're looking for things, probably the biggest change to my career or what I've really appreciated the most was being involved in the different associations and being able to network, whether it was the International Association of Fire Chiefs, whether it was IFE USA, that connects you to a world of people who are passionate just like you are. Everyone can find at least, you know, four or five people laying around the firehouse that have no interest besides finding 6 a.m. to go home. Uh, but that connects you in those associations to people like you that would watch this podcast that want to be better every day. So to me, that is truly what I think is important, no matter what degree you have, no matter what you want to do, get connected. Appreciate all the insight again, as I said, but you're not off the hook yet. We do something called the hot seat where mm -hmm. we, we throw some a little more personal questions in you uh, at you and, and they come from previous guests. Uh, Janelle's mom, of course, is uh, a great contributor to our <laughs> questions. Um, but they're usually more, um, you know, just, just, just more run and gun kind of things. Um, and Janelle always loves to start with them. She's, she, uh, she enjoys coming up with them. And then of course I go totally off script, but, um, Janelle, what do you got for us on the hot seat questions? All right, chief, you've had the opportunity to travel quite extensively. I'm wondering what country really stands out to you as somewhere, a place that you've visited that you really enjoyed visiting. Uh, thus far, I, I truly enjoy London. To me, it's uh, New York, D.C., and L.A. all wrapped up in one place. Uh, it was kind of neat to see. I'm sure maybe as I travel more around the world, uh, you know, me and my wife really want to get to Australia one day. So, you know, that may be great. But if you were to ask me today where I've been, I think that truly is a unique place that we were able to go. London's great. Keep Australia on your on your uh, on your list, Chief. It's definitely worth it. I lived there a couple times, so um, nice. yeah, it's it's a it's it. Make sure you go. That's all I'm telling you. You'll you'll <laughs> love it. Um, and speaking of love, what is your favorite drill to do for your cruise? Uh, probably the favorite drill for my cruise is to see them be able to go out and do gear drills. Um, I am very passionate about time out the door. Uh, you know, some of our firefighters around here may not love me because of that, but uh, you know, I can't move the firehouses today. I might be able to in the future. I can't <laughs> fix when people call in, you know, an actual fire. I've got really two time segments that we fully control. One is getting out the door, so that's getting most of your gear on. And the second is our setup time. And that is getting the hose off, getting your mask on, and getting in the door. And those are the two things that we control fully that make the difference of whether we rescue somebody or we don't. So any drill, uh, give us a, give us an example of one that you'll, you, you kind of do. Do you set the tone for it and then say go, or, or how do you normally set those up? Um, well, I'm fortunate I have a training chief that uh, does all that for me on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. I just kind of get to set the parameters of what we do. But, uh, 
you know, I get out and do that with them. So, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's my speech. You know, okay. that's how I set it up. We control two time segments in the big picture from the time it, the event actually occurs till we're doing something about it. Those are the two time segments that we're in full control of. So we should fully be prepared to do them the most efficient and fastest that we can get those done. When I, I was part of a drill, one of my, you know, mentor lieutenants, we, you know, one day it was raining and we, we just sat around and we, we just tried to mask up, get more efficient at masking up. Right. So get your gear on. And then that I've noticed that as well, you know, especially now moving from a firefighter to a, to an officer, you know, you got different things. You got, Hey, where's that tick? Where's this? But right. Like, and that's what you're saying. Even a simple drill like that, you'd be out there. You'd be loving that, that part of it. Yeah. All right, Chief, taking a hard pivot here. I want to know who would you want to play you in a movie of the story of your life? I don't really know. I, I hate to say it, but when you, you, know, you rattle off my bio, in case you haven't figured out, I don't watch TV. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what you're saying is you're not the target audience for this question. <laughs> Yeah, I'm really not. Like you could pick anybody and name a name. I wouldn't know who they were anyway. So um, you know, I watch the news for 30 minutes a day to make sure I know what's going on in life. But uh, yeah, to say I watch movies or sitcoms or, you know, like, no, I truly don't. Let's go with De Niro. All right. Perfect. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Or, or maybe a cross between De Niro and Richard Gere. Maybe I think, you know, a little yeah. bit of both, maybe the rock, you got a little rock in you. You're like, oh, I do know who he is. Yeah. I've seen a couple of his, you know, there we go. There we go. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not built anything like him. So I, I guess that would be an improvement. Well, you know, I, it's more the attitude you have of the rock, right? I, you know, you well, kind of like, yeah. like intense quick drills and, you know, I think that's all, all part of it. Um, you know, it's, it, you, you, I love the fact you're like, Hey, I don't watch a lot of TV. You spend a lot of time on reading and self-improvement, uh, I guess. And this relates back to, um, you know, the whole meaning of the podcast, what are you doing on a daily basis right now to get yourself better? Well, so I've kind of moved from going to school to obviously, you know, about half of my career is being a professor. So, you know, after I'm done in the fire department, I go home and, do my professor job. So I think for me, a lot of self-improvement now is I get to read papers, you know, I get to grade executive fire officer papers. So I learn about different things in different organizations rather than to sit down and just read a book. Now it doesn't say that I still don't read books, leadership books, all those things that, you know, people do that, you know, are successful in life. But I think I've moved from, doing all those like I did in my early career to now being involved in a lot of people's learning and being involved in all the different associations where learning is truly a network, um, you know, making those connections, finding the next department that has the same exact issue as you and learning how we're going to get better together rather than reinvent the wheel. So, um, I don't know if that's exactly what you were looking for, but that is kind of where I'm at and, what I do today. Yeah, I, I, I love all the the, the the theme and the tone is really about just reaching out and learning from each other. 
uh, I think, correct? Like we, we have a lot of smart people and yourself included in the fire service and that people that, that work and help the fire fire service, we need to continually utilize that and, and, you know, look around right for it and, and have conversations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I tell people all the time, I'm not really that smart. If you just spend seven years of your life and hand them enough cash, they'll actually give you that degree. Uh, so I'm not really any smarter. I just spent longer in school. That's all. Um, but it truly is coming back to, you know, learning from different people. I can learn from probably anybody that's willing to share their experience. Um, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, I've learned from people that have done well. I've learned from people that are like, Oh, I would definitely not do that. Uh, so, you know, you're learning no matter what. And, and to conclude this, what's one thing you've learned that you really want everyone else to take from this podcast? Um, don't waste your day in the firehouse or waste your day off day. Um, we are expected to go out and know a little bit of everything in the world, no matter what it is. When we are called, people cannot figure out how to fix whatever it is. They're expecting us to be there quickly, as we talked about before, and they're expecting us to fix the problem. You know, you look at the, the fire chief from Chicago, you know, I'm looking for five decathlons that are there to fix all the problems I ever had. That's really what the public expects. So the only way to do that is to spend time each day, whether that's spending time in your district, watching a podcast like this, reading a book. I think they still exist. Uh, <laughs> yes. So um, no matter what it is, you know, I watched a lot of people over my career sit in front of a television, watching something completely irrelevant to our profession and, you know, look up 20 years later and couldn't figure out why they couldn't get promoted or, you know, why a run didn't go well. And well, that's because you watch television for every third day for five and six hours instead of spending time in your district or picking out something to learn. So I think that's what I would tell the future me is, you know, start early, continue to learn and, uh, you know, hope for the best. That's brilliant. That's perfect. It's a great summary to uh, not only the essence of what this podcast is about, but what we talked about throughout and uh, again, Chief, thank you so much for your insight. And Chief mentioned about listening and watching this podcast. You actually can watch this podcast on the uh, Fire Rescue One YouTube page. You can also uh, see us uh, on FireRescueOne.com. We'd love for you to email us at BetterEveryShift at FireRescueOne.com. Please rate, review the show. Please let us know if we're on something or onto something. We love the feedback. Um, and most importantly, take the words that Chief Hannafin has said, and that is get out, learn something, do something, and share something to make you and those around you better every shift. Thanks for listening, everybody.